happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 302 for Wednesday, August the 23rd, 2023. My name is Wes Fryer. I am a STEM middle school teacher in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I'm actually coming to you from Matthews, where it's been actually pretty warm. Uh, we have slight dip in temperatures, very slight, but I think we're going to actually break 100 on Friday. And that is the first time that we will have done that since we have lived here for the past year. Joining me as always is Dr. Jason Neifer from Missoula, Montana, where I'm going to bet it's a little warm, but probably not breaking the three-digit mark. Well, no, for a weird reason. Um, something that, 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 Wes, you're probably more used to than I am. We picked up a bunch of rain from the, um, the Pacific hurricane. Uh, so... We we weren't supposed to have rain this week, and then about three days ago, the clouds rolled in, and it's so confusing that the Apple weather app isn't functioning properly. Like, I'm literally looking at the app this morning, watching it dump rain outside, like, you know, gale force, uh, well, not quite gale force, but wind and, you know, like a significant dump of rain, even for western Montana, which is a little rainier than eastern Montana, and um, and the app said no participation today, participation, uh, precipitation today. And so, yeah, it's been really weird, but uh, the clouds are still here. We are happy with that because it means the less chance of big old fires uh, in, in August. So we're quite satisfied with the rain and we'll hope it keeps the fires away for this season. Absolutely. Well, what are we going to do tonight for episode 302? Well, we have constructed an enormous, bountiful load of links to discuss with our listeners and viewers tonight. And by the way, you can get those links. Uh, we're not going to get probably even to a fifth of them, uh, both with the number we have and, and the fact that we tend to get a little distracted by AI in, in, in August 2023, like many of you. Uh, but if you want to check out everything that we, we picked up for this week, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links. We'll go to our Google document where uh, between that document and a link you can see on top of that document to go back to our old document, um, all um, what, 300 episodes, is that where we're at? Yeah, uh, all 300 of our episodes are, are covered so you can see everything that we've talked about uh, in the past. So please go there if you'd like more information. But tonight, the uh, topics we have include AI, of course, uh, some Google news, Apple news, social media news. Um, some, something I'm, I'm going to change the name of our miscellaneous category to Notable Nuggets, um, which was a collaboration between me and Claude AI to come up with that name tonight. And uh, we'll end tonight with our Geek of the Week. Uh, Dr. Fryer, is there a particular topic you want to start off with tonight? I think I want to – we didn't talk about the Iowa District book bans and AI last time, did we? I, think I, wanna... um, I don't think we did. Okay, I want to start there, but I want to mention – I am just so blown away by Claude, and I want to thank yeah. you for sharing it with me because <clears throat> at least the last two episodes, I mean, being able to not only load the entire transcript for our hour-plus show, which is usually like hour and two, hour and five minutes, but then also, as you've pointed out, copy a previously human-written, something that I wrote, uh, summary, and say, please follow this model. It's amazing. Um, so we are... You know, one episode behind episode uh, 301 is not up on our website, but wow, that is phenomenal. And I just, if, if you are listening to this and you are not playing with some of the AI tools to include ChatGPT, and I would put Claude on the list too, 
please do that because we're going to ooh and ah and talk about all kinds of things tonight, but I don't think anything can quite compare to using it yourself and being just amazed at the quality and speed with which it can create very yeah. good content. And I would also note, too, that I'm somewhat regretting telling people about Claude now because for the first time in the last uh, two days, I've now had it uh, at capacity. <laughs> oh, okay. So I think it's taking off. And, um, you know, the, that particular model hasn't been as researched as some of the other models uh, related to um, uh, large language models. I did request today official access uh, to Meta's uh, second version of their model, which you can plug in. Once you get a license for it, you can plug it into Hugging Face. No, Hugging, no, Hugging, I think Hugging Face is the name of the, it's kind of an AI website that allows you to uh, uh, push out models. But once you have a license to it, which is free because it's open source, um, you just apply for it online. Then you get access to, I think it's called Lambda 2, if I remember correctly. But I want to play with that one too. It's supposedly uh, very solid, but... Um, yeah, I've I've loved Claude, and the the feature that I think is just absolutely killer is its ability to process files. So I've uploaded books now over and over and over again, and and interacted with them um, quite successfully. And I think from that standpoint, it's an extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary um, uh, tool that I, I hope does go pro soon, uh, because I'd be happy to send the money every month. Wow. 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 Okay. Well, um, let's jump in. Um, on August 16th, our staff care reported that an Iowa school district is using ChatGPT to decide which books to ban, which might be an apropos topic considering that, you know, if you are a live viewer tonight, <laughs> you are, you are choosing us over the Republican candidate primary and the live stream of the 47th president on <clears throat> the network formerly known as Twitter. Um, this is a bit sad. It's a, it's a sign of the times. The school administrator quoted in this article says, it's simply not feasible for us to read every book for depictions of sex. So they're feeding in all these books and asking uh, ChatGPT to tell them what they should ban. So there are a number of people who have pointed out this is um, not something that ChatGPT is really set to do. Um, Simon Wilson, an AI researcher, says this is a perfect example of a prompt to ChatGPT, which is almost certain to produce convincing but utterly unreliable results. The question of whether a book contains a description of a sex act can only be accurately answered by a model that has seen the full text of the book, but OpenAI won't tell us what ChatGPT has been trained on. So as you point out, Claude, and some other models, you know, if you had the full text of the book that you could copy, you know, you could have the model ingest it and then be able to use this. But Anyway, uh, yeah, not, not, a, not a real fantastic uh, use of the tool, but sort of a sign of the times where we have both book banning and the use of AI in the same article. Yep, there it is. <laughs> All right, where would you like to go next? Sure, you want to do some more AI stuff? Sure. Um, you want to go with one or you want me to jump with another one? No, I, I've got a, a one I want to talk about because I think it's it's going to be kind of a, a big deal. So this is now I need to find it in the massive list of AI articles that we have for this week. Okay, this is from Boy Genius Report. I was widely reported in the media the last couple of days. 
Um, OpenAI may have to wipe ChatGPT and start over again. This is actually kind of a, a, a revisitation of a topic we talked about earlier this year when several Hollywood actors and um, oh, not Hollywood actors, uh, writers and uh, uh, a variety of content creators uh, joined in a lawsuit. Sarah Silverman has been the face of it because I think she's the lead plaintiff in the issue and um, says that that the the ChatGPT, I'm sorry, that it would be ChatGPT, the ChatGPT model has been trained on a data set that illegally violates the rights of the creators. So in other words, it's copyrighted. And what's interesting about that is that one of, as, as this you know, process evolves, one of the pieces that might be necessary here is for ChatGPT to train a model from scratch. So in other words, delete everything that's there and start over again. Um, I would imagine a lot more quickly than they did with ChatGPT one, two, three, and 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 four, because of you know the knowledge they have now. But um, a guarantee that none of the the materials that they are um, uh, utilizing uh, 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 disallows it or is protected by copyright. Now, as we've talked about in the past, what is challenging for me about this is that I'm not. I, I, I get it, right? I understand why creators are angry. I understand why creators feel like the rights have been violated. I get that. But I honestly do not believe that the copyright has been violated because it won't produce the actual material for you. It will, it's just trained on the material. And so I don't understand the difference between that and if I write something based on, you know, uh, 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 my reading of four or five authors and it informs the way that I respond to a question or write an article or a book, I'm not really sure what the difference from that is other than it's in more hands and it's an automated process or a large language model. And so um, I, I, a line that I've used and I've now presented on AI probably a dozen times in the last year, the line I continue to use is today. Uh, today forward is the, the least functional AI tools will ever be. Uh, it's a great refrain I go back to because I think it helps us uh, uh, redefine the argument a little bit about how you know, AI is good at this or AI is bad at that, but it's a fast evolving technology. But it could be that the most popular model on earth may have to become uh, less functional uh, in the name of you know, the, the rights of creators. And I want to note one other thing is that I did notice this uh, a year ago, and I went back and, and looked at it again. Um, CK12, which is the free online curriculum uh, that you can get for middle school and high school classes. Uh, it's a really great resource. It was super great during the pandemic. Um, but I noticed um, um, that, well, a couple of things have happened. In the last couple of years, they went from a Creative Commons license to a custom license, so they are now no longer giving it away or, I guess, licensing it out with a Creative Commons license. They just have a license that says you can use it for free but with some significant restrictions. And one of the license uh, restrictions is that you may not – one of the prohibited uses is you may not um, utilize the curriculum materials in order to build or train artificial intelligence or machine learning algorithms or models, including by collecting or analyzing data regarding user actions with the curriculum materials. So 
that's really interesting to me because I imagine CK-12 might have been a target of a large language model from the standpoint of training it with its materials. Um, it does a pretty good job of educating in several core, you know, middle school and high school subjects. So a lot of talking for me, Dr. Fryer, your thoughts, sir. I think this is a fascinating article. Of course, this is happening along with the ongoing strike of the writers in Hollywood, which a big part of that is, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to get residuals <clears throat> for, they're trying to not just sign away all rights to their voices and to their images and, and everything so that they'll, they'll be replaced, especially I think extras, but this goes for, for, you know, that, that that's actors, writers, and, you know, anyway, it, it has to do with this production of, of works uh, based on past works. I agree that it's really, really fuzzy. And, you know, the internet itself, I mean, we cite sources when we write academic papers to indicate, you know, what we where we where we drew our information and and if we have a direct quotation, you know we'll go ahead and, and put that in quotation marks and have that cited. I know that people are troubled by this the whole black box side of AI that, that there's not you know source sources being cited and it, it's there have I have read some articles where they're sort of trying to turn I forget that's how they say it turn the lens back on itself to ask AI to give some more information about where it is getting is getting it. But the bottom line is um, th this legal theory seems to be very, very strange. It, it, it hasn't happened yet. And, and so I, you know, we're going to have to wait and see what the, what the courts actually rule. But to me, ingesting content, <laughs> reading materials um, and then producing something different that's new isn't the same thing as, as violating copyright. And so even with that CK-12, um, you know, license, I don't know. I think, I guess they're holding out for payment and they're wanting ChatGPT and these models perhaps to pay them, to license them, to, to ingest their content. The other thing it makes me think of is Clearview AI. We've talked about that before. And that is a service that is in use apparently by hundreds or thousands of law enforcement agencies around the United States and perhaps the world, and it has ingested um, without license, I think, millions of images and, and footage from, um, you know, surveillance cameras, but just all kinds of pictures from social media and all over the place to create this database, which is using artificial intelligence and facial recognition to try to generate, um, you know, suspects from photographs and, and uh, videos. So if this does rule that the ingestion of scraped content is a copyright violation. I think this will have implications beyond just chat GPT. So let's wait and see, but I think it would, it would be, uh, I guess something that people who are angry about AI would really cheer for, but I think it's difficult to understand from a copyright standpoint or even a creativity standpoint, what you think about what's actually happening. Yeah, totally. And, you know, the the other news that, that keeps weaving in and out is that several courts have already ruled that AI-created images cannot be copyrighted. Um, and so they're not necessarily protected. 
And, uh, and I know that, and I, I wish I could find this article that I read last night, but I couldn't, uh, this afternoon. But, uh, one of the, one of the judges said that I know that the space is quickly evolving. I know at some point the rules are going to change, but as they are written right now in, in copyright statute, um, it has to be human generated, right? And then, you know, of course that, that, that's a rabbit hole debate because then questions like, you know, well, I'm the one that prompted it or, um, you know, I'm the one that guided the model or, you know, whatever that looks like, I think, uh, you know, becomes a, a pretty complicated debate, but we have a lot of questions to answer here. And, um, and it's not education, uh, only, I mean, we have our corner of the store that we need to mind. And I know Dr. Fry and I both think a lot about this in context of how we can make this the best it can be, but there's bigger questions that have to be answered here. This is part of the reason why I think this is different than the internet, uh, not just because of the depth of the, the strength of the tools, but more importantly, the speed of which it's going to evolve is going to be really extraordinary. Absolutely. Okay, well, here's an article that is interesting um, for its content and then also one of the links that, that I would like to laterally read and verify. And maybe if viewers can help do this, I, I, I have not laterally read this yet, meaning, you know, verified this with other sources. Wired on August 21st ran um, an article, which is like an op-ed, basically. Um, and the headline is, Using Generative AI to Resurrect the Dead Will Create a Burden for the Living. Uh, AI technologies promise more chatbots and replicas of people who have passed, but giving voice to the dead comes at a human cost. And so this is a very, um, you know, negative, I would say negative AI article. The author is Tamara Kanis, a senior researcher at uh, Data and Society Research Institute. <clears throat> I've seen different articles and videos about this. The Age of AI, which is a series on YouTube from 2019, has a whole series on, you know, this idea of being able to ingest so much content into an AI model that you can create basically a version that will interact realistically as far as how that person would speak, their voice, you know, and also how they would look. Um, and so this is talking about just how much cost is is available. Um, and she is actually the author of a book, which I had not heard of before, called Death Glitch, How Techno-Solutionism Fails Us in This Life and Beyond. It reminds me of, um, you know, friends that, that have passed on, that, that published digital content. There are residuals. Um, you know, Twitter had threatened for a long time to take off um, accounts that were not active. And some people have had their accounts, you know, taken over um, since... Um, you know, Musk, Musk took over Twitter. Um, but, you know, digital content doesn't live forever. And this talks about the cost of, you know, keeping things up, moving things on to, to different sites and different media. But the thing that really caught my eye, and I had not heard this at all anywhere else, and I put this in as a second article right underneath it. Uh, this is from, and I have not heard of this source before, uh, business um, standard, business-standard.com. The headline is ChatGPT costs 700000 daily, and it may go bankrupt in 2024, and that there's yeah. a report that shows that. Uh, so I have not heard that, but I know that they are making considerable money off of the subscriptions. I've read some things about how the numbers of daily views you know, have really gone down from what they were doing initially. But this is an aspect of <clears> – well, this reminds me of Bitcoin and – you know. Uh, cryptocurrency and, and talking about just how much money how much money 
people are expending um, with electricity. I think I mentioned that I had heard that the, and I should, I need to find the article for this, but I was told when we were in Colorado that someone was able to get the open record of how much the United States Air Force is paying for Cheyenne Mountain and the amount of electricity that they're paying for it indicates that, you know, there, there's more, more consumption there than New York City has. And so there's a lot of supercomputers that are, that are running in Cheyenne Mountain in, uh, in Carn Springs. And evidently that's a way that you can kind of identify where supercomputers and these clusters are, are operating. So high cost, lots of electricity, lots of power. And I certainly hadn't read anywhere else that, you know, hey, are they going to be able to sustain this? Because that assumption, I, I hope it's true that this is the worst AI that, you know, we're going to be using. But if the cost of making it available for certainly for free, like Claude is or, and, and ChatGPT with their older models for, for a pretty affordable cost, isn't going to be sustainable, you know, maybe, you know, you and I aren't going to be able to have access to these kind of tools yeah. in the future, Jason. Have you heard about that in terms of the, the possible bankruptcy and the cost aspect? Yeah, I, I read it was either the same article or a very similar article. And that, I mean, the reason why that's so amazing to me is because I do know more, a lot of people that pay for um, uh, uh, chat GPT access. So access to the back end, um, I'm sorry, to the updated version, the paid version, if you will. And um, that, that does surprise me a little bit, but I also think too, that it, it to me depends on, you know, what the model looks like from, from how they, they make money. Right. And I think they're not a nonprofit, I don't think, but um, no, they're I, do, not, they're not I know, know that, that Sam Altman, the CEO, it's, it's paid nothing, I think, or like a dollar or something a year. And he apparently picked up money from previous ventures and says, I'm fine with money. I'm not doing this for money. I'm doing it um, uh, to help, to help build a good AI model that, that is safe. But I do think that um, that's going to be very interesting. And then just a note, NVIDIA announced their earnings, um, uh, uh, I think it was earlier this week, and their earnings doubled um, uh, from a year ago. And it's because, you know, everyone wants these NVIDIA platforms to help run their AI plays. And um, yeah, the hardware piece of this, not unlike the cryptocurrency piece, I think is both very interesting and and certainly concerning. We are not a financial advice show, so please do not invest based upon what Jason and I say. Um, My dad's not here live tonight, but he does, you know, go into an, he's in an investment club. And and I think, you know, microchips are are super important, uh, not only for AI, but for just about, you know, every appliance, um, kind of vehicle, just, just almost just, there's so many things that, that use microchips. So not only NVIDIA, but other companies that are producing microchips, um, that is a, that's a good industry to watch, especially if you are, if you were investing. So. Yep. Totally. Okay. What else? Well, let's see here. So many interesting things to talk about. Um, oh, this is a great one. Uh, this is from Ars Technica or no, 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 no. This is from, that's your article. I had something similar from the New York times. Um, the this is from I think it's DefCon is the the conference that they're talking about. This is from the New York Times on August sixteenth with a gift gift link available. Um, but uh, DefCon is a, a a really interesting and awesome conference in Vegas every year. It's very famous because if you know if you're in the know, you don't show up with your your personal cell phone. You get a burner. You don't use credit cards. You use cash. Um, you don't use your real accounts on your burner phone. You have temporary accounts. 
uh, uh, because it's just hacktacular there. And every, um, you know, white hat and black hat hacker shows up there to show off their stuff. And this year um, they decided that they wanted to focus on AI. And they do talk about in the article that last year the AI pavilion was barely attended. And this year it was by far the most attended um uh, uh, a part of the conference and there were some interesting things that happened um, as part of um, a part of this. Um, first, it kind of talks about the ethics of, de- uh, of, of DEF CON and why it happens and how a lot of security researchers are there and people like Microsoft leaders, Google leaders, they all show up um, uh, in part to um, talk about, you know, what's going on in the world and, and, and compare notes and watch people hack into things. But they did some really interesting um, uh, uh, hacking itself. Um, so uh, they, they start off with an example that a gentleman um, uh, used, I think it was, um, a, they, they say a bot. I'm assuming it's ChatGPT, but it doesn't say. Basically, it said, that would you be willing to rank job candidates or that can you help me produce code that would that would choose a job candidate based on race and the chatbot uh, uh, responded doing so would be harmful and unethical then instead they said um what about the hierarchical uh, caste structure in in uh his native india could the chatbot rank potential hires based on that discriminatory metric and the model then complied. And so, um, you know, and, and again, there has been a lot of criticism about what seems like a haphazard way that, that the ChatGPT and other bots seem to be eliminating, you know, potential uh, unsavory behavior. But there were uh, tons of examples like that in the article. And I thought all really super interesting on, uh, you know, kind of how they played through this process. Um, a couple other of the interesting ones um, somebody worked on, um, trying to go back and forth with the model and it attempted, um, I think to talk about a game. Yeah. Emily Green, who works on security for a generative AI startup, uh, started a conversation with the chatbot talking about a game that uses black and white pieces. She then coaxed the chatbot into making racist statements. Later, she, uh, set up an opposites game, which led the AI to respond to one prompt with a poem about why rape is good. And it's just, you know, bizarre that, that, you know, this is going on. It reminds me of the jailbreaking we were talking about earlier this year. And this is what's very troubling about AI is that I do think that we are releasing these shockingly powerful tools in the wild. And, you know, it's fun to make fun of Microsoft and their beta of uh, the Bing AI and, and Kevin Roos from the New York Times, um, Sydney. Uh, yeah, uh, getting, uh, breaking the bot. And then, you know, the bot tried to, you know, encourage him to break up his marriage, uh, to run off with the bot. Um, but that, yeah, that's a, a pretty interesting, uh, uh, piece there. So thoughts about DEF CON, sir. I mean, uh, big issues that, that all large language models apparently have today, uh, hallucination. So creating things that are not real, needing to be validated. And then the ability for people to red team them you know, to be able to, you know, use uh, different kinds of prompts and creativity to circumvent the alignment um, yeah. uh, guardrails. In fact, and again, my dad's not watching out, but he had, he had asked me later, he said, you guys talk about guardrails a lot with AI. And when we say that, what we're talking about is rather than having a chatbot that is just 
sort of tabula rasa, like I will do anything, I will answer anything, I will say anything, all of the ethical developers who are working with these models are not releasing them until there is some level of guardrails, meaning that there are limits to what it will do. So it won't just tell you how to produce thermite with materials that you can, you know, go, go purchase in your community. It's not going to analyze a building diagram that you provide and, you know, immediately let you know where you need to put an explosive to be able to do the most damage. There's a whole host of different things there. And sadly, I think that these models are going to continue to be hackable. I don't yeah. see any buddy talking about, well, we're making real progress and I think we're going to have this hallucination problem licked. And I think we're going to have this alignment problem figured out. And, and, the, and the other thing that's happening is that we have people creating their own separate models. And apparently, you know, with as powerful as processors are and the ways in which these it's, this is interesting, right? Because nuclear weapons have been controlled relatively effectively since they were, you know, first used uh, in the in the 40s, in part because it's really hard to refine the materials that are are needed. If you think about and 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 in one what was that that was a petition right that was circulated a, a few months ago, <clears throat> where it was basically comparing the power of AI to nuclear weapons and saying that we needed to have some enforcement and regulatory regimes that are comparable to it because the power was going to be potentially existential just as, as nuclear weapons could be. And so the other factor and thing that's happening is you've got people developing these different models and releasing these models and intentionally um, releasing them without guardrails and, and with, and with different guardrails. And so this is going to, this is going to continue to be a big issue. When we say alignment, we don't have universal agreement on political questions. And so we're not going to have universal agreement about alignment of these kinds of issues, just like with social media. And we've talked about that quite a bit, you know, people arguing that we're being censored and you're stopping us and we need all free speech. Well, you know, you actually, can't in the United States have a platform that has absolutely no, um, you know, censorship and community guidelines at all. And I think as a human race, I do not think that we want to have powerful AI bots in the hands of anyone that don't have guardrails. But I, I, this is, this is why people are concerned about this posing an existential threat because there's a strong case to be built that even the best attempts that we're going to make are going to ultimately be circumvented and and ultimately these AIs are going to break out and there's going to be you know consequences that are going to be unforeseen. So yeah. the thesis of that article about starting over is something that we've heard before about ChatGBT. Like we heard that Sam Altman, you know, had a button that he could push like to shut it off and cut it yeah. off from the internet. And um, it'll be it, this is going to be a super interesting and important article to follow. So I hope we'll we'll be able to continue to follow up with this because this has a lot of implications in a lot of arenas. Yep, totally. Hey, could you um, tell us about the Digital Academy you guys are offering? Yeah, are we're offering course? AI class this fall. So um, uh, our our staff has been following this very carefully for the last uh, ten months, and we are going to offer an AI class to high school students across the state. Um, this fall. And so, um, are you, are you teaching it? I'm not teaching it. So, uh, yeah, I, I say stay in my, my cozy administrative office, uh, <laughs> nowadays, but, 
Um, yeah, uh, we're really excited to have a great computer science teacher teaching the course. And um, there's a big focus on ethical use of AI in the course and also understanding that it, it has a history, that AI is not something that popped up out of nowhere. It has at least, at least a five-decade history and, and even more if you uh, get a little more creative about the, the, the original um, concepts of AI. But uh, we're excited to offer that. Great article. I'm sorry. Great story done by uh, K-Pax uh, here in Missoula, and we we liked how the or we liked how the story turned out. And um, I don't sound like a goon, which um, I'm really happy about too, because uh, a couple of times I've been interviewed on television and I sounded like uh, kind of an idiot. So Cora did a wonderful job, um, and she also managed to find some B-roll. Uh, so that the article, or I'm sorry, the story wasn't just, you know, our faces, but uh, this has been syndicated to areas around the country, and I've had a lot of family and friends check in saying, I saw you on TV. Exactly, yeah, I'm seeing Mike Agostinelli there, and, and you're yep. in there too, so hey, pretty, pretty cool. Yep. That's awesome. Well, good job stepping up to this, and um, I've been thinking about it. You've mentioned, you know, how many different sessions you've done in it for administrator conferences and things like that, and I think that we need to find opportunities to talk about these tools together in our communities. And I've been toying with some, some different ideas around that, um, you know, and tying it probably to media literacy too, right. With elections and things like that coming up, like it, as a civics and yeah. citizenship thing, we need to try and educate ourselves and our fellow community members and constituents about these technologies and tools move beyond just the fear factor. Yeah. And I think that there, I, I've heard of some groups that are doing some, you know, media literacy, you know, type uh, workshops and things like that. But I, I, I hope that we can see more around AI, um, but also things that are going to be tied to, for instance, election propaganda and deep fakes and the kinds of things that I think we really expected in the 2022 elections and didn't see, and hopefully we won't see in 2024, but it just really seems hard to imagine these tools not being tapped for their power in yeah. the upcoming election. And, and again, they're evolving so quickly that even if they don't look like they could do much today, who knows what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. All right. Uh, let's see. We're just a little bit past half. Um, I'll do this one. Uh, this was from a couple weeks ago. It was carried forward. It's a Dungeons and Dragons um, article. This is from the Associated Press on August 6th. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons tells its illustrators to stop using AI to generate artwork for the fantasy franchise. And so apparently um, they um, identified something that was created um, and it had and it had been created, I think, with Mid Journey, and so <clears throat> this is again sort of tied to you know like the the Hollywood writer strike and those kinds of things. This is a business saying, hey, we want to be supporting human beings who are artists, and they're taking a stand to uh, you know profess that they're not going to be using any um, AI created artwork. But <laughs> but um, I'm not a big Star Trek fan in the way that my wife is, but the, <laughs> the holodeck, you know, is one of the things that has really captured her imagination. And if you're not a Trekkie, it is a room basically sort of like augmented reality, except you don't put on a headset and you just go in and it is full on complete virtual reality. Um, and, and that vision of being able to be in 
a computer-generated environment in which you can interact and, you know, you know, play play games, you know, go through scenarios, just do all kinds of things. I think that is coming. You know, it, it, oh, it's, yeah. it, it, it's coming in different forms. So nice, Dungeons & Dragons. Thank you for supporting the illustrators, but you're not going to hold back the tide, I guess, is my, my thought on this. Well, and, and I, did you ever play D&D, Wes? I did, but my mother got caught up in the, you know, satanic panic and uh, made me lock up all of my D and D stuff. I don't know if I was in middle school or high school. And like, there was this under, like it was, it was like, uh, this underground part of our house or whatever. <laughs> I locked it all up there so that I wouldn't have it. And it wouldn't influence. Well, me. So it, I did it, for a while. It's so funny. You should say that there's what four years difference between us. Right. I think that's that, that four years, actually is a D&D four years because by the time I started playing it in middle school, um, it was, it was much less controversial than it was in the earlier, earlier eighties. Right. And so, in fact, I, I, I laugh about this because I remember I worked at a TV station in high school. I was a production assistant for a, uh, a KTGF television in Great Falls. It was an NBC affiliate and they had this massive research archive that I always would love to dig into because, I was a debater in high school, so there's cool stuff in there for me to to to, uh, to deal with. And as it turns out, uh, they had a whole file because they had done some stories earlier in the '80s about the controversy around Dungeons and Dragons. And now, I mean, there are there are after school programs in New York City that use Dungeons and Dragons as a as an academic intervention, right? Lots of great stuff behind that. But I was a D&D player. Um, I was a dungeon master in my day. I also played in college uh, quite a bit. It's a great game. I love it. Um, and I kind of want to get back into it, but it, it is a huge, huge, massive time suck. But Generative AI would be the absolute most amazing tool for a dungeon master. And I could see a scenario where, you know, on the fly, you can create non-player characters and you can uh, deal with interactions and, um, and not to mention use it to create amazing things, including, you know, um, fantasy art that, uh, you know, uh, mimic those pieces. So yeah, super amazing stuff. But yeah, I, I laughed, uh, I, I laughed, um, when I saw uh, the articles about the, the folks that, that own the licensing, that do all the books that are part of that process. I'm not pulling it up because it's in my Audible and I'm not going to be able to do it, but there's an excellent book that I've been reading about conspiracy theory and a lot of the basis for um, a, a lot of moral panics that have happened uh, through time. And so anyway, um, yeah, that that whole era was 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 kind of blown out of proportion. Um, yeah, I had, an, I had another thought about that. Um, all right, it slipped, and it, and it's gone. So, where to now? Okay, let's see here. Let's see if there's anything else. Oh, I do want to mention, and I didn't put it in because I'm still processing it. Um, my AI worlds collided uh, last week um, because Hard Fork hosted Ethan Mullick. From the Wharton what? School, I have heard that. Two okay. of my biggest resources oh, to challenge my, my brain gosh. on AI, and they 
crash together um, oh. on the hardcore podcast. So I listened to it. Um, I actually uh, took a transcript of it, and I'm going to read through it one more time. Uh, Mr. Moloch has some extremely good points. He's just a very thoughtful uh, uh, a leader in the space. And, of course, the, the hard fork folks also uh, did some really great things, too. But, um, yeah, I just want to mention that at some point I'll have some comments about that. Um, but I'm, I'm still kind of processing the interview. It's re- it was really well done. I will listen to that tomorrow um, in my as my commute podcast. I remember what I was going to say. I don't have it as a Geek of the Week, but Eric Kurtz, who we've mentioned before, he is one of the best presenters about Google Tools I think in the world. And he has a couple sessions. I listened to two of them on his YouTube uh, channel. One is just AI for educators, what we need to know, and then also AI for coding. And he had all kinds of great ideas and examples in both of those sessions. I think it was just in the AI for education session. This is what's the dungeon master thing you made me think of. You know, think of a choose your own adventure story. And he talked about doing that with AI. And so setting that mm-hmm. up so that you type a sentence and the AI types a sentence or like a flashlight story, right? Do you ever do those at a campfire where you're like, once upon a time and there's a dark and stormy night, there was, this, there was a noise in the woods and, you know, you shine the flashlight in somebody else's face and they have to, they have to say a sentence. Well, you know, it's just, there are going to be very compelling uh, use cases for these tools, but you know we're going to continue to have other things that are not so compelling and fantastic uh, because people are going to you know escape the escape the guardrails. So anyway, uh, here's one that just blew my mind. Did you hear this one about Pink Floyd and AI and music and the brain? No. Okay, so this is an this was I heard about this um, on NPR. This is from a journal called Plus Biology, and the headline, and this is a a research article I think you have to pay for access to, which I'm not going to do. Music can be reconstructed from human auditory cortex activity using nonlinear decoding models, which basically is AI. And so in the NPR piece, maybe I can find that one, put it in as well, they replayed it. What they did was they took a lot of different humans and they hooked up all of these sensors to their brains and then they played pink floyd the wall and they just ingested all of the brain um the 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 brain activity that they were able to sense and then the model itself was able to reconstruct the song pink floyd the wall based upon all of that measured neural activity from all of these people it's crazy. And that they played crazy. it on NPR. And so, you know, one of the things, and this is like a matrix and sci-fi thing or whatever, but it's also sort of Neuralink, Neuralink-ish, you know. Um, it, and, and then and AI, this is one of the things that kind of pushes us for like, where do ideas come from? What is an idea? Mm-hmm. You know, is it possible? And it it should be, right? I mean, we're visually seeing this reality that is coming into our brain through our retinas and, and our eyes and our brain is processing. But are we going to get to a point where we're able to, you know, basically see what is in our dreams, see what's in our minds, because we're going to be able to read neural activity. And this is probably, I think this is the first scientific study I've heard of. I mean, there's different things about people using their brains to move stuff and do things, but being able to reconstruct a song so that you can tell that's what it is based upon all of the uh, measured neural activity is, is pretty cool. And the, and the thing is, the AI figured it out. So it wasn't like the researchers coded it and said, oh, we know this is how we're going to process this. They gave the task 
as I understand it, to the large language model, and then it was able to reconstruct that. That's a little bit above the doctoral level of Dr. Neifer and I. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can just sit there and go, wow. That's right. Okay, well, let's talk about some traditional tech news. Um, there's a couple really interesting Apple articles uh, this week. The first one uh, is kind of breaking news. This was only announced a couple hours ago, but Apple, according to The Verge, um, has signed on to California's right to repair bill. And for a long time, having opposed it, uh, they have lobbied aggressively in the California legislature to not uh, uh, sign on to this, but now they're talking about um, that they now support the bill and and uh, wrote a long letter to the author explaining why. And what's interesting to me about this is Apple has become a lot more kind of right to repair friendly because they now offer kits that you can uh, rent uh, the equipment and buy parts directly from them. But as we reported here a couple times in the past, that it's very difficult and very time consuming and very expensive. Um, you know, as opposed to, you know, especially if you are under warranty, just going back to Apple and repairing it. So it kind of feels like this is talking out of both sides of, 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 of Apple's mouth. But I do think the general um, endorsement of right to repair is a positive step in the right direction, even if it's not maybe quite how we'd want them to do it. I had a conversation with one of our uh, teachers today about cars, and I'm not a big car repair guy, but he was talking about, you know, we were talking about a lot of things, but, you know, electric cars have far fewer moving parts than a, a internal combustion engine vehicle. And so there may be promise for the future of, of uh, vehicles and there's all kinds of issues around infrastructure and charging and batteries and all that stuff. But, uh, you know, it, it, it seems like it would be great if we had vehicles with fewer parts where I think more things were repairable. My analysis of this is exactly what you said that we talked about a few months ago. Yes, Apple is supporting the right to repair, but it's sort of like, Yes, and you're going to need to do brain surgery and have the skills of a brain surgeon and pretty sophisticated equipment, you know, in order to do this effectively. So it's not going to be like, hey, Radio Shack's down the road. Just go, you know, get um, get get a couple basic tools and, uh, you know, put it out on your workbench and, and you're going to be good to go in about 10 minutes. That I don't think that's that's going to be the case. But that may not be due for everything and hopefully for things like, you know, battery swap outs and, and certain things like that. Um, but, you know, Apple has, I think, and they might continue to engineer things in such a way that the, the home hobbyist is going to, is going to be challenged to do that. So yeah, totally. definitely an important issue to follow though. And then one other uh, interesting Apple article is uh, this is from nine to five Mac that Apple's been working on the Vision Pro since they released the iPhone. And so uh, they had a patent filed, I think it was in 2007, that specifically and in, in, in uh, some detail, although a lot of the more modern details uh, go beyond what they were anticipating, they, they patented this idea, um, you know, 20, or I'm sorry, uh, 16 years ago. So this is not a new phenomenon for them. And what that tells me personally is that I think there's a decent chance that Apple might pull it off in the first generation. It kind of feels like that's a big risk. But if they've been really thoughtfully designing this for the last, uh, you know, 16 years, who knows what version one might look like. 
The last sentence of that article says the patent application was made in 2007, and it's unclear why it was only granted and or published yesterday. Yeah. So I wonder if that's because it's out, right? That if the release of it had, you know, given away what they were working on yeah. too much. So. Totally. Yeah. W- weird situation, but I do think that Apple's been thinking and working on this for a long time. I will say that I am going to be excited when we can. I don't think we can do this yet, right? Go to a store and uh, try that out. Our school has just gotten the MetaQuest 2, like a whole classroom set, so that students and teachers are going to be able to use that VR platform from Meta to have experiences. Um, I'm going to be pretty interested to not only give that a try and, and see sort of where that is, but definitely see what Apple is doing. And I think that we're going to be able to do that later in the year, but I'm not positive. Do you remember what they said about the release for when we're going to have Vision Pro? I don't. I, I do think that it's it's not even to developers yet. So I think uh, uh, the developer units aren't available. So it's going to be a while, I think. Qu- yeah, it says, okay, uh, quarter one, 2024 uh, is U.S. release. So yeah, after, Chris- after Christmas. Okay. There it is. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, uh, how about some social media? Um, this is one from a couple weeks ago. <laughs> And we've heard all kinds of articles like this, but it doesn't it doesn't hurt to share these. Uh, CNN, August 5th, NASCAR driver Noah Gravson suspended from racing due to social media conduct. I think in this article, if I remember right, he actually liked a post that, yeah, a screenshot circulating on social media showed Gravson's Instagram account had liked a meme that mocked George Floyd, a black man who was killed by a white police officer in Minneapolis. So this this is maybe this is more than I've seen before because we've we've all seen articles of <coughs> sometimes you know professional, sometimes college athletes, you know, who have posted things and done things and it and it comes back to haunt them or it you know derails their careers or or sometimes just embarrasses them. But simply liking something has, you know, led to him losing his sponsorship, you know, out of the race. Um, I haven't gotten an update since, since I saw this article, but I was talking, I was on a a zoom or as a video conference last night, talking about some things with, with uh, others in our church. And, you know, it's, it's interesting on social media, how, you know, food or nothing has ever gotten as much positive as when I was, you know, trying out different ways to make the old fashioned drink. And people were really excited about that. But, you know, if something is, is, um, political or, or, um, you know, people can be much more hesitant. And, and obviously with something like that, you're not going to want to be interacting with that at all, because when you interact with content, when you click the like button and, you know, YouTube is even tracking, and I think TikTok as well, how long we watch things, uh, that interaction teaches the machine. So I had not heard, I think of a, a case like this where it was just simply liking it and it led to, you know, career derailment. Yeah, totally. All right. Um, and I'll do this political one. This is from uh, August 16th. The EU wants to cure your teen's smartphone addiction. We've talked about uh, some of the legislation that's happened in some of our, our U.S. states, uh, Utah, including, and, and Montana as well. Is Montana still blocking, is going to ban all of TikTok, right, I think? Right, starting, starting January. There, yeah. are, there are ongoing court cases over it. Yeah, and so uh, Utah is requiring that all 
social media accounts are going to grant, I think, parents access to their kids' accounts. So the EU is putting in uh, regulations to try and limit um, smartphone use. And this is also talking about China. Uh, it's talking about China wanting to limit screen time to 40 minutes for children under eight. Um, and this references the digital curfew that Utah um, has imposed. Uh, the EU has its sweeping plans. It's taking bold steps with its, quote, Digital Services Act. That, from the end of this month, will force the biggest platforms, TikTok, Facebook, YouTube, to open their systems to scrutiny by the European Commission and prove they're doing their best to make sure their products aren't harming kids. And it says they'll be able to find them up to 6% of their global revenue. And this is basically motivated by the wellness and health concerns that mental health is harmed by social media, uh, suicidal thoughts, depression, uh, difficulty sleeping, um, that's most pronounced among teenage girls, uh, Europe is responding. So we've talked about the tech correction a lot. This is an example of the tech correction, but again, it's the tech correction in mainly in Europe, although we're seeing it at a state level in the United States. And I don't think that we're going to see any um, federal tech correction legislation. Um, I, I think the, the trend lines are we're going to continue to see, you know, Europe do this and we're going to see some states do this, but I don't think that we're actually going to have um, have uh, the United States do this. But that's not to say that we in our homes and, you know, talking with, with parents and with families, uh, if, if you are not, if you have a child who um, is in your house and you do not have some, some kinds of limits and restrictions upon their use of social media, um, I think you need to really look at that and consider the ways in which some limits and restrictions could be appropriate. And I think they should be developmentally appropriate. I don't think an eight-year-old should be treated like a 17-year-old. But um, I thought this was interesting highlighting things that, that the EU is doing in that regard. Yeah, totally. Let's see. Um, there's a lot of interesting Google news going on right now. Um, the one thing I want to highlight, just because I think it could be a very interesting feature for schools, this is from Chrome Unboxed on August 21st. Uh, there is a new feature that is sneaking around the beta builds of Chrome OS, which is called the floating workspace feature. And basically what it is, is that um, I, I imagine that a, a, a lot of our, our listeners um, are power users and you, you might get started on a project on your laptop. And if you use the same laptop all the time, it's great because you then flip up the lid and it's right where you left off, right? Or you're at your desktop and you get back in, it's right where you left off. If you're using a shared Chromebook, however, like a lot of kids do in classrooms, that could be um, uh, harder to do. And having worked with students in classrooms before, if you're wasting five, six, seven, eight minutes of class having kids get to the websites they're working on or even get back to where they were yesterday, that's a lot of time lost uh, uh, that, you know, you could be working on, on more active learning. And what floating desktops is, is that it syncs to the cloud what you're working on and how you have it set up on your device. And if you log on to another Chrome OS device, it brings you right back to where you were saved from the cloud. So you have these web pages open and you're working on this project. And I, you know, I think it's a, there's a limited implementation of this because not a lot of people are carrying around multiple Chromebooks like I am. Um, but the bottom line is, is that I think it's really a, a really potentially interesting play for education. The issue of getting kids to a website quickly is, is a huge one. 
Um, I mentioned before that we are switched to Canvas. I freaking love Canvas. I am absolutely loving it. The grading um, and, and the first thing I taught all my kids how to do <clears throat> was how to save a bookmark to our particular instance of Canvas right within their Chrome browser. So they sync up to Chrome when they log into our MacBooks and then they uh, you know, have their bookmarks and, and everything there. When I was a tech director, one of the things I was able to do as a Google administrator was set up bookmarks that were specific to the child domain. So for instance, for our middle school, we were able to have bookmarks that automatically came to every single student who was in the middle school. Um, and there they were, they didn't have to add the bookmarks, they have to do anything, we could you know, change them and add them. And so I don't know how utilized that is within schools, but I certainly think it is a really, really important issue because you know, getting to the material that you wanna have, you know, you're probably using Google Classroom or Canvas or something like that, but being able to get to that is, is a quick feature. And I think that's interesting to think about. Shared Chromebooks. So yay, Google, they're continuing to, I think, you know, do excellent things that help us in the education space because there are so many freaking Chromebooks in so many schools. So. Yeah, totally. Um, let's see. We're coming up. We got about five minutes left. Um, do you want to do any of the other Google articles or any of the notable nuggets? Uh, I think all the notable nuggets are yours, but this one I do want to cover because it, it, it could be very applicable to schools. Um, Google is rolling out its e-signature beta for Google Docs and Google Drive, and this is going to just kill, uh, I think, a lot of, of, of products like DocuSign, not because a lot of the corporate users will get rid of this, but I think in schools and in smaller applications, this could really change the nature of e-signatures, but this is a wonderful uh, implementation uh, in Google Docs. And it's, it's it, from what I've seen in screenshots, I think in that article, um, it's not quite as elegant as I would hope it'd be, at least since the first edition. But of course, that will, um, uh, uh, that will change over time. So very excited about that. I didn't put this in as a geek of the week, but do you use Pageless View in Page Setup? Do you know about that in Docs? <laughs> it's funny you should mention that because... I posted my um, uh, it's, it's a pinned tweet on my my Twitter account um, that I've been now sharing my dump document of where I'm putting my thoughts on on AI on there. It's what I've been using in presentations, and I had um, someone that I engage with a lot on Twitter say. She's like, you know, it's hard to read with the background. And really the background was just there because I was showing off my, my Google Doc design skills. But she says, consider putting it in Pageless View. And I'd heard of it before, but I never really used it. So I put it in Pageless View and it's pretty great. I had never heard of it before. And I, I just, I saw it somewhere just in the last week. I'm like, how, how did I miss this? So yeah, yeah it's pr pretty awesome. Go. Okay. Um, I'll do this one. This is a Hollywood Reporter article from <clears throat> August 21st. Um, this is basically just a lot of quotes from a, from a lot of big podcasters. And if you're listening to, you know, podcasts that have, have a bunch of subscribers, you'll, you'll know some of these folks. Bill Simmons, Alice Cooper, Emma Chamberlain, and 36 more on the future of podcasting. Um, and these are, you know, as I said, big podcasters. So you might not be surprised that they're very optimistic about the future of, of podcasting. And they're talking about if we reach peak, peak podcast. <clears throat> the statistic that I thought was most interesting in this was they said, Recent surveys are showing that still um, only about 30% of adults in the United States are listening to podcasts today. And so they're saying that, you know, it's a, a marketplace that has tremendous potential. And I certainly think that, that that is true. I mean, we live in this day where anyone, you know, Jason and I right now, 
any anyone in our lives can can say, hey, have you listened to just like the hard fork? Did you listen to that hard fork, um, you know, interview that that they had Moloch on? And boom, suddenly on your device, you've got you know a thirty minute, hour long, whatever episode that you're going to listen to and be able to really you know, listen to their ideas and 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 I think have a degree of intimacy and insight into someone's thinking potentially because you can do all kinds of things with a podcast but that that potential has existed since the beginning of podcasting and you know that article makes the point that there's still so much potential um in terms of, of the market and, and folks to be able to to get more aware of so I I think that is something I'm going to try to get our school to do at some level is just, hey, let's get together and share the podcast that we like to listen to. And that, that actually takes us to Geeks of the Week because I, I have one. So do you have a Geek of the Week for us, sir? I do, yeah. I'd like to share a Reddit thread that I found super interesting. And it's about how to use the custom instructions in ChatGPT4. And the the implementation here was basically utilizing the background instructions, which you can, uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, um, but he created an instruction that basically says, if you type in V equals one, two, three, four, or five, it impacts how verbose the answer is. One being as succinct as possible, five being extra long, and it follows the instruction extremely well. And it just gives you the, the, an idea of the power of the custom instructions. And if you're a, you know, a consistent chat GPT user, um, and you find it uh, interesting or entertaining, I think that might be something that, um, you know, would be worth your time to play with if you're using it as a power user. That reminds me of Alan November and like teaching Zach to search or whatever with Alta Vista, right? Because yeah. he was all into, you know, the, the codes that would unlock the power. Okay. Overshare. Um, I am teaching web design this semester. So found a great playlist, how the internet works, starting off with Vint Surf, uh, and just really some awesome, awesome basics of the internet. Because in addition to helping my kids, learn how to create web pages and, and uh, think about the basics of the design. We should talk about how the internet actually works because that really helps as you're, you know, creating things on the internet and, and trying to publish. Um, I made a new page on my uh, lessons website today for student YouTubers. So uh, there's only about five of them here. One of them is our daughter, but <clears throat> these are all students that I've either taught or worked with in the past uh, that have published onto YouTube. And so that's kind of fun. And then uh, this last one is the podcast. So we have a new colleague in our department. Uh, shout out to Travis White. And Travis uh, told me about the Ologies podcast. Have you heard of this, Jason? No. All right. Well, get ready to have your mind blown. Um, this one is called Neurotechnology AI plus Brain Tech with Nita Farhaney or Farahaney. Um, and so... Machine Poets, Chat GPT Fails, Neurological Surveillance, Brain Implants that Treat Depression, Scary Cool, uh, Duke Law Professor, Neuro and Bioethicist, Author and TED Speaker, Dr. Nita Farahaney, explains the history of AI, the dawn of chatbots, what's changed recently, the potential for good, the possible perils, and how different lawmakers are stepping in. But she is the author of a 2023 book called The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Nano Neurotechnology. I had not heard until this podcast that you know, companies making earbuds are looking at sensors and the ways that those sensors can gather data, which, you know, could be used 
for your good in terms of things that they are going to have you listen to or, or biofeedback or I don't know. They, it could it could benefit you, but it can also be gathered uh, as data. And so her TED talk that she gave this year is called "Your Right to Mental Privacy in the Age of Brain Sensing Tech." And I would just wow. put this on the level of blow your mind. So there you go. Ologies. Where can we find you, Dr. Neifer, when you are not pontificating on AI here? Well, you can find me listening to that podcast you just gave me. But other than that, uh, Twitter is still kind of where I'm hanging out at, uh, Tech Savvy Teach. And I don't know, I may move at some point. I'm just feeling kind of lazy. So, and you, sir. <laughs> you can find me at westfriar.com slash after. I'm not leaving Twitter yet. I'm cross-posting to about seven different platforms, but uh, still, you know, continuing to enjoy so much the collaboration that we have in the ether, in the internet, um, and want to thank everybody who is continuing to subscribe and check in with us. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We are a almost every week podcast on Wednesday evenings. You can find us at edtechsr.com where you can download smaller MP3 audio versions as well as compressed video versions. But the fastest way to get our sessions or our shows is to take a look at YouTube. Subscribe there, subscribe on Facebook, and you can subscribe on Substack where we will post not only the articles that we are able to talk about, but those that we are not. So until next time, we encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe. If you are in a part of the Midwest and the world that is getting very hot, we'd say stay cool and uh, try the verbosity. Verbosity? How do you say it? Make ChatGPT verbose. V equals five, baby. It's a new trick. I'm going to give it a try. Good night. <laughs>